How are Karl and Karl Menger important for liberalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Scott Scheel. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Scott Scheel. Scott is an assistant professor of social science in Arizona State University's College of Integrative Sciences and Arts. He has published extensively on topics related to the history and philosophy of the Austrian School of Economics. Scott is co-editor of Research in the History of Economic Thought and Methodology. He's also the founder, producer, and former co-host of Smith & Mark's Walk Into a Bar, a history of economics podcast. And Scott is the author of two books, F.A. Hayek and the Epistemology of Politics, The Curious Task of Economics, and Dialogues Concerning Natural Politics, a Modern Philosophical Dialogue about Policymaker Ignorance. He blogs at policymakerignorance.substack.com, where you can also find his new podcast, The Week in Policymaker Ignorance. Scott, welcome to The Curious Task again. Thanks for having me back, Alex. It's always fun to join you and uh, and Sabine. I always enjoy our conversations. Yeah, it's great. I'm looking forward to our topic today. And of course, as you know, we base each episode on a theme and question uh, and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, of course, why is Carl Menger important for liberalism? And this is an audio-based podcast, so without a visual component, some people might not know. I read the main question today is Carl with a K. However, it turns out there's two Carl Mangers, right, Scott, with one with a C and one with a K. So before I get into some deeper questions and poking and prodding at a very high level, can you tell tell me who Carl with a C and Carl with a K Manger were, the connection between them, and then we'll go from there. Okay, so I will, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a bit of biography about uh, both men and um, then hopefully talk a little bit about why they were each important in their own, um, in their own times and in their own disciplines, and then maybe we can go off from there. So uh, Carl Menger with a C, um, the famous economist, was born in 1840. Uh, he was born in a part of the old Habsburg or Austrian Empire, um, Galicia and Lodomeria, uh, that is now in, in southern Poland. And I, and I mentioned some of this biographical information about Carl with a C. Menger because not much is known about his life. For as, as famous and important as he is a, as an economist, his, his biography is a little bit obscure. So, um, so Menger was born in 1840, and uh, Galicia and Lodomeria, like I said, is now in, in southern Poland. This was before the Compromise of 1867 that created the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so it was still very much just the Austrian Empire at the time. Um, Menger completed his studies for a law degree at the Charles University, the University of Prague, in 1863, but he did not sit for oral exams at the time. Instead, he started working as a journalist, uh, first in Prague and then in in Lemberg or Lviv, Lvov, which has been in the news recently, is in Ukraine, city in Ukraine. Um, this eventually took him to Vienna, where he worked successfully as a newspaper editor and journalist. Um, in 1865, he started his own newspaper, Das Vienna Tagblatt, uh, which might be translated roughly as Vienna Journal or Vienna Daily or the Vienna Daily Journal. The paper was a, was a great success, although it was always cash-strapped because Menger was committed to keeping the price 
very low um, source to appeal to a, a, a mass audience. Um, Menger eventually completed his legal studies in 1867, um, and he continued to work as a journalist during these years. Um, eventually, his own Vienna Tagblatt was purchased by the Austrian government, and Menger became something of a freelance journalist at this time. He continued to write for the Vienna Tagblatt and also the Vienna Zeitung, which was the uh, the official organ of the Austrian government. Um, around this time, Menger developed an interest in economics and started writing notes for a theoretical treatise that would eventually become his magnum opus, um, the Grundsatz der Volkswirtschaftslehre, I'm horrible at pronouncing German words, that basically uh, translates as principles of economics. Uh, in February 1871, Menger applied for what in the German language university system is called habilitation, which would allow him to teach at a German uh, university. Um, the Grundsatz was published in 1871, and it was widely and fairly positively reviewed in the German academic literature. Uh, Menger habilitated in 1872, and his academic career soon took off. Um, He eventually was named professor of economic theory at the University of Vienna in 1873. Sometime, apparently in those years, 1872 or 1873, Menger was approached by two aspiring economic students, Eugen von von Bawerk and Friedrich von Wieser, who were lifelong friends and soon-to-be brothers-in-law. Bombavrik would actually marry Wieser's uh, sister, Paula. Bombavrik and Wieser, who were 11 years uh, Menger's junior, were dissatisfied with the economics that they had been taught and were highly intrigued by Menger's theory. Menger encouraged them to think independently and to study economics on their own, but he also secured scholarships for them to continue their studies abroad. Um, Although neither Bombavrik or uh, Wieser ever formally studied under Menger, they were ultimately probably more responsible than even Menger himself for spreading and promoting his ideas to the wider world outside Austria. Um, Bambaver served many times as the finance minister in Austria. In fact, his face was on the uh, the last version of the Austrian 100-shilling banknote before Austria switched over to the euro. Um, uh, Wieser, for his part, eventually succeeded Menger as professor of economics at the University of Vienna. Uh, and very interesting fact about Menger's life, uh, the, the elder Menger's life, was that he uh, he served for a time as the tutor for political economy to the Austrian crown prince Rudolf, who was 17 years old at the time. Um, the two developed a close friendship, and um, Menger was regularly vi- invited to dine at the Imperial Palace, and the two frequently traveled together. Um, they also corrobor- corroborated on a number of essays that, uh, given the somewhat controversial nature of the essays and Rudolf's role as the heir apparent to the imperial throne, uh, had to be published anonymously and conveniently while the pair was out of the country. Um, The late 1870s found Menger writing a book on the methodology of economics titled in English, I won't attempt it in German, um, Investigations into the Method of the Social Sciences with Special Reference to Economics. Uh, That book was published in 1883. It sparked what what is known as the Methodenstreit or Battle Over Methods with members of a rival school known as the German Historical School. Um, During the vitriolic back and forth that followed the book's publication, members of the German historical school started to mock Menger and his followers, especially Bob Averick and Wieser, by calling them the Austrian school. Of course, Austria was very much seen by Germans at the time as a rather backwards and uncouth place. So so the name was meant as an insult. 
Mager continued uh, his his relationship, both uh, professional and personal, with uh, the Crown Prince. Um, in 1878, the Crown Prince was ordered to uh, to a military service in Prague. Um, he and Menger continued to correspond and would meet whenever Rudolf was in Vienna. They often discussed political issues, and Rudolf was always frank about his opinions. At the time, Rudolf was growing somewhat impatient with his fathers, with the emperor's conservative politics. Uh, he wished to be more involved in, in imperial affairs, and he was kind of an arch-liberal, uh, Crown Prince Rudolf was. Um, Emperor Franz Joseph was not comfortable with this and kind of tried to keep his son in the dark about political matters. Um Menger occasionally felt the need to restrain the crown prince's risky political ambitions, which Menger thought might endanger his future position. Um, he warned Rudolf to work with and not against the emperor. Um, concerned with Rudolf's sort of impulsiveness, impetuousness, Menger was kind of constantly warning him to, you know, not express negativity against the, his father so openly, um, especially around people that he didn't know that he could trust. Their relationship cooled somewhat thereafter, perhaps as a result of these sort of repeated warnings not to go against the emperor. Um but they still were uh, visit each other regularly when they were together in Vienna. Rudolf's descent into something like madness seems to have commenced by April 1888 when Menger last visited him. Uh, he had not seen Rudolf for some time and noted in his diary that Rudolf uh, was disheveled and was drinking constantly. Um, they would exchange a few more letters, the last written by Rudolf on December 3rd, 19, or sorry, 1888. A month later, on January 30th, 1889, at the Imperial Hunting Lodge at Meyerling, southwest of Vienna, 30-year-old Archduke Rudolf apparently murdered his 17-year-old mistress, Baroness Mary Vetsera, uh, before turning the gun on himself. The emperor's brother, Karl Ludwig, uh, renounced his rights to the throne a few days later. Rudolf's similarly ill-fated cousin, Franz Ferdinand, then found himself in line to the Austro-Hungarian throne. Of course, that's a, that's another story entirely. Indeed. Um, in his diary, Menger described Rudolf as an ingenious man, but he also complained that he had made tremendous sacrifices for the crown prince, all of which had, because of the latter's own stupid and selfish selfish actions, ultimately served no good purpose. So this is interesting. It's the last entry that we find in Menger's diary, and hmm. he never started another one. Seems So it seems like he was really affected by the crown prince's um, actions. Uh, over the next decade, uh, the elder Menger would serve on an imperial commission to reform the Austrian currency and publish a series of influential articles on the theory of capital and on money. Uh, Manger fathered a son, also named Carl, uh, in 1902. Carl was born, Carl with a K, right. was born out, out of wedlock. Um, this led to something of a controversy in Vienna. It was not a, not a normal thing at the time and very conservative, very Catholic Vienna for, uh, for you know, the famous uh, economists to be fathering children out of wedlock. Um, perhaps in a response to this controversy, uh, the elder Menger resigned his chair at the University of Vienna in 1903. Um, it's not altogether clear why he retired early, but his relationship with uh, Mina Anderman, who was 30 years younger than him, they never married, um, could, be, uh, could be a reason. Um, in any case, whether as a matter of fatigue, ill health, or his desire to dedicate more time to his research, um, his son's birth marked the beginning of Menger's retreat from Viennese society. He continued to work to advance his economic ideas over the last 18 years of his life, um, especially to complete the long-promised second edition of the Grundsätze. 
But these efforts uh, really proved abortive, and the final decades of Karl Menger's life revolved more around his small family than the further development of Austrian economics. Um, he died on February 26, 1921, just a few days after his 81st birthday. Okay, so that's a little bit about C. Menger, the person. Let's just talk briefly about why he was important, and then I'll come back to K. Menger, his son. Sure. Um, as an economist, Karl Menger's most significant contributions, I mean, if you were to ask the average economist today what Karl Menger contributed to the discipline, if they didn't respond, uh, what, who, what's a, what's a Karl Menger? Right. <laughs> <laughs> they, they would say, I've never heard of him. I wasn't taught about the history of economics in graduate school. Um, if they didn't give that response, which is true, it's an unfortunate fact that economists today know little about the history of their discipline, um, they would probably give you one or of two answers or both of two answers. Um, first, Menger was one of the three independent co-discoverers or co-innovators might be a better word um, because there were precursors here. Menger was one of the three co-innovators of the so-called marginal revolution together with William Stanley Jevons in England and Leon Valras in Switzerland, all of whom working independently of each other sometime in the early 1870s developed the marginal theory of value. The idea had actually struck Jevons about a decade earlier than it did Menger and Valras, but Jevons didn't do much much with it initially um, until the early 1870s. So the marginal theory of value led to a revolution in economic science, the so-called marginal revolution in economics, out of which many of the major and some of the minor movements in economics have subsequently developed. Um, as so some listeners probably know, the history of economics is roughly divided up into two eras. There was the classical period of Adam Smith, David Ricardo, John Stuart Mill, Karl Marx and others. The classical period lasted roughly from the publication of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations in 1776 till around 1870. The neoclassical period begins with the marginal revolution in the 1870s. Of course, I, I should mention that I'm I'm oversimplifying here, so I hope my fellow historians of economics will excuse my, my gross oversimplifications, but the historical reality is quite complex, so we need to simplify things a little bit. Um, anyways, the significant difference between the classical and neoclassical periods can concerned the theory of economic value. Classical economists like Smith, um, but especially Ricardo and Marx, looked for economic value in some kind of objective measure, such as the cost of producing a good or the quantity of labor that entered into its production. The marginalists, on the other hand, and this is especially true of the elder Manger, sought economic value in the subjective judgments that individuals make about their own well-being or level of satisfaction. And the prospects for some good to either add to or detract from their current level of satisfaction on the margin. Um, so that is perhaps the most significant difference between the classical and neoclassical periods, the difference between the vain hope of the classical economist to discover an objective measure of economic value and the eventual recognition of the marginalists of the vainness of this latter hope and the fact that in the end, all economic value is subjective based on what individuals think rather than on some objective factor or other. Um, now, there were significant differences between the individual marginalists that had consequences for the future of economics, more so than Jevons and Valras. Menger and his followers really emphasized the subjectivist side of the marginal revolution and rejected the use of mathematics um, that Jevons and especially Valras used to explicate the marginal theory of value. Valras developed an elaborate system of simultaneous equations to show how the subjective evaluations of individuals across the economy on both the production or supply side of the economy and the consumption or demand side of the economy interact to produce various economic phenomena. 
Jevons, or at least his follower, Alfred Marshall, later turned somewhat against the subjectivist aspect of marginalism and argued for an objectivist cost of production concept of value, at least with regard to the supply side of the economy. Uh, One could argue that this points in the direction of Keynesianism, um, and indeed Keynes was a student of Alfred Marshall's. What came to be known later in the 20th century as the quote-unquote neoclassical synthesis is essentially, and again, I'm oversimplifying here, but it's essentially a marriage of the non-Mangarian aspects of the marginal revolution, a a synthesis of Walras' mathematized general equilibrium approach and the Jevons-slash-Marshall-slash-Keynes, or what came to be called the Cambridge approach to economics. Um, Menger's emphasis on subjectivism and his resistance to mathematical methods remain to this day a unique aspect of the Austrian school that he founded. And that's probably the second thing that the average economist today knows about Karl Menger. He founded the Austrian School of Economics. Okay, so that's that's a little bit of biographical, a little bit of intellectual biography about the uh, the elder Menger. Um, let's talk a little bit about his son, Karl. So as I mentioned, Karl was born in 1902. Um Initially, his parents did not live together. In fact, for the first 10 years of uh, of his life, um, uh, the elder Manger, we might call C. Manger, is to, to distinguish him from K. Manger. Um, the elder Manger uh, lived separately from his his um, significant other, for lack of a better word, uh, Mina Anderman, and uh, their son, Carl. Um, at some point in, I think it was around 1911 or 1912, um, the elder Manger appealed to the emperor of Austria at the time to have uh, his son legitimated. There was a there was a process in place whereby the emperor could effectively legitimate um, children who had been born out of wedlock. And um, the younger Menger at that time was uh, legitimated. And it seems like he actually changed his name changed at that time. He had been uh, he had been he had grown up the first decade as Carl Anderman, taking his Mm -hmm. mother's name. And it was at that point that he changed to uh, to that. His parents, I assume, did it changed his name to Carl Menger. Um, so, and it was around that time that they that everybody moved in together. So the family the family uh, began to live together sometime in the early part of the 1910s. And uh, if from all of, from everything that we know about the family, they were extremely close. And um, the elder Menger um, went out of his way to. Uh, teach his son um, everything that he knew about Austrian economics. So um, if you read uh, the the son's diaries, um, it's pretty clear that he, you know, he he learned um, Austrian economics uh, almost literally at the knee of the master. Um, and so uh, the, the son um, himself became very knowledgeable about economics. He eventually, um, as you might expect, uh, he was an excellent student. He, um, uh, but he, he was more or less taught himself. Like he was very much an autodidact. So, mm-hmm. um, if you look at the at the material in his diaries, he's constantly making lists of the things that he's studying. He's he and he had an extremely broad interest. He studied everything from economics and social science. Um, to you know, he was very interested in physics. He initially entered the University of Vienna as a physics student. Um, 
and uh, he was a, a a wide reader of you know literature and things like that. So we know quite a lot from his diaries about about how he sort of taught himself to be a uh, uh, an intelligent person. And he and he certainly was an intelligent person. He he um, he graduated um, not at, at the top of his class, but he, he graduated with honors from his uh, gymnasium. He eventually um, went to the University of Vienna as a student. Um, he spent some time. In in, during the summer uh, before entering the University of, of Vienna, he spent some time in Sweden. And it's interesting because while in Sweden, he lived with um, friends of his father's who were famous economists at the time, uh, Knut Vixell, who was a very famous, very important Swedish economist, and uh, Donald Davidson, um, who was another important economist who had known Manger, um, uh, the, the senior Manger in, uh, earlier in life. Um, so Carl with a K Manger, he also because he was around um all of these you know kind of famous professors he knew a lot of famous people so he knew sort of all of the famous people in vienna that his that his father knew um later he developed a correspondence with friedrich wieser after this was after his father died in 1921 they maintained a correspondence in fact uh, one of the things that's interesting about carl with a k manger's biography is that at a very early age in fact while he was still in high school his father uh named him the editor of the second edition of the Grundsatz, which I mentioned when I was talking uh, that, that uh, Carl with a C Manger never finished during his lifetime. Um, and when he died, he basically handed it over to his son. So um, one of the things that I think um, we've added, my co-author and I, Reinhard Schumacher in Germany, one of the things I think that we've added to the, uh, to the literature on Manger is that uh, it turns out that the second edition of the Grundsatz, uh, which was never uh, translated into English, by the way, it's still only available in Germany hmm. uh, or in German, was, um, I don't want to say rewritten by the son, but he was actively involved in um, crafting the second edition of the Grinsatz. Um, you get the impression from looking at the available material that um, basically the son had available to him, you know, the original version of the Grinsatz, and then a whole bunch of scattered notes. And believe me, I've looked at these notes. They're incoherent. So he <laughs> had this job of, of trying to figure out what his father meant what these notes of his father meant and what his father wanted him to do with this second edition of the Grunsatza. Um, this, it seems from what we can tell the fact that the young high school student Carl with a K Manger was named the, uh, in effect executor or editor of this second edition, um, seems to have created quite a bit of internal controversy within the Austrian school at the time. Uh, people were not happy right. that this, uh, young, um, man who had not even gone to college yet had been named the, um, the, the editor of this um, of this second edition, and that sort of manifests itself in um, the fact that nobody was really willing to help him very much. So um, he, he at different times sought the advice and um, and information of members of the like what you might say second generation of the Austrian school. You know, Bambavik, Wieser, and their students. Um, he he consulted them and didn't get much help. In fact, there was only really one. Um, a uh, former student of Manger's who was willing to provide um, advice and guidance. And that was a, a, an economist by the name of Richard Schuller. Um, 
And uh, but otherwise, uh, the young Menger was sort of left on his own to uh, to do this editing job on the on the um, the second edition of the Grunsat. So that was eventually published, I think, in I forget the twenty three or twenty four. Um, and so it took some time for him to uh, to to uh, to edit the second edition. And by the time it came out, his father had been do- had been gone for um, for several years. Um, so uh, Carl with a K Menger. Uh, eventually uh, settles not on physics as his discipline. He decides he wants to be a mathematician, and we, we can talk. We can talk about the irony of his father being, uh, you know, methodologically opposed to the youth, use of of, uh, of mathematics and economics, and his son becoming a mathematician. We can talk about that later. It actually is even more ironic than that sounds because um, a Carl with a K Manger ended up being uh, perhaps one of the most perhaps the central figure in the promotion of mathematical economics um the the use of mathematical methods in economics but but that's well, well that's still coming in the biography so we'll get to that um anyways he um he decided on 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 mathematics after attending a lecture of uh, a mathematician at the University of Vienna by the name of Hans Hahn um and Hans Hahn it's an interesting story um gave a lecture on the th- mathematical theory of curves and um in this in this lecture uh han started off basically by saying mathematics has this problem we don't have a an adequate definition of the concept of curve um what i'm going to do in this lecture is lay out some of the some of the definitions that have been offered and then i'll explain to you you'll see why none of them really work so um to hear manger tell the story he attended this lecture like on a friday and then he went home and he was just all consumed with the concept of curves all weekend and he just thought of nonstop about the mathematics of curves all weekend and when he came back uh next week he um the following week he went to see han and basically said well here's what i thought about and this was this was unique of course because at the time undergraduate students at the university of vienna did not just you know knock on the doors of respected professors and right. have a, a chat with them but of course menger was the son of a very famous uh Vienna professor, so maybe he he was given a special treatment. Anyways, he shows up in Han's office and basically offers him this um, definition that he had developed over the weekend of a curve. And um, to hear Manger tell the story, Han initially is sort of like, you know, not paying much attention to him. You know, he's kind of reading and maybe occasionally looking up and, you know, as this young man is babbling on about curves, but he he slowly puts his book down and he starts to pay more attention. And and at the end of the conversation, he says, yeah, you know, I think you I think you're onto something. Thing here, I think you've you've got a definition of curve that might actually work. Um, so he basically spends the next couple of years of his life working on this problem of the mathematical definition of curve, and also there's a related um, problem of the, the definition of dimension. What do we mean by dimension in mathematics? Um, he spends the next few years working on that. He eventually goes. Uh, I have to f- get the dates right. I can't. He does he finish. Uh, he finishes in Vienna, then he goes to Amsterdam, um, where he works with a very famous uh, mathematician by the name of L.E.J. Brewer, um, who was uh, very famous at the time for his contributions to the um, – there was a debate going on about the foundations, the philosophical foundations of mathematics, and Brewer had made contributions to that literature. Um 
Eventually, they have a falling out, uh, basically because Menger accuses Brewer of uh, of stealing some of his ideas or not treating his ideas with the uh, with the kind of respect or originality he feels that they deserve. He ends up coming back to Vienna. Um, Hahn gets him a job in the as a professor of mathematics in the in the uh, mathematics department at uh, Vienna. I should say, actually, I think it was uh, a professor of geometry, not mathematics. Um, and from that point on. Menger is in um, Austria for the next uh, ten. I forget when exactly he leaves to go to uh, leaves permanently to go to the United States. I think it's uh, nineteen. Uh, 34 maybe he leaves to go to the united states of course everybody is leaving at that point because they they have a feeling that something bad is on the horizon and i should mention that the younger menger his um his mother uh, mina anderman was jewish by birth although she converted to catholicism but that that wouldn't have meant anything wouldn't have meant anything to hitler so um so menger was on a list somewhere and he knew that he needed to get out of vienna um anyways during those years say 27 to 34 somewhere thereabouts Menger is actively involved in the in the Viennese intellectual community and in a number of different respects. So uh, he joins the Vienna Circle of Logical Positivism, which, of course, was a very famous, very influential um, circle of philosophers, mathematicians, logicians in Vienna at the time. Um, he seems to have, um, and this is kind of relevant to some of the work that I'm doing, he seems to have a more significant impact on the course that the Vienna Circle eventually took um, than he's generally generally credited for. Uh, in particular, he encouraged the members of the Vienna Circle. When he joined, uh, the Vienna Circle was very much uh, obsessed with this concept of the language and the logic. The assumption seemed to be that there was just one ultimate like logic that underlay all of the the various languages in the world. There was just one logic and 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 Mayer didn't understand why they would believe that. So um, he started pushing uh, a position that eventually became known um, in the writings of another Viennese, uh, Vienna Circle uh, philosopher, Rudolf Carnap. He began pushing what came to be known as the principle of of tolerance. And the idea behind the principle of tolerance is basically that um, there are multiple logics or there can be multiple logics and the only question that matters is which logic works best for whatever purpose we might be trying to um, serve at any given time or whatever scientific function we might be pursuing, whatever scientific objective we might be pursuing. There are multiple ways that we can pursue those that objective. And the only question that matters is which way works, basically, which logic is going to get you to the goal um, through the sort of shortest route. Um so that was really Menger's impact on the Vienna Circle. Uh, he, I, th I interpret him as steering the Vienna Circle kind of away from this mon monism about logic in the direction of a more pluralistic attitude about logic. Um, at the same time that was going on, uh, Menger was, of course, teaching at the at the University of Vienna. We should mention that um, one of his students, uh, one of the most important people of the 20th century, Kurt Goodell, um, who subsequently in these years developed his incompleteness theorems. Uh, Goodell was, of course... Um, kind of a fringe member of the Vienna Circle. He attended the meetings but didn't say very much, and you get the impression that he was always very skeptical of everything that was going on in the Vienna Circle. Gerdell was a very interesting person, by which I mean crazy. Um, a very interesting character. Um, anyways, 
uh, Menger also, while he was participating in the Vienna Circle, developed a circle of his own that he called the Mathematical Colloquium. And it was in the Mathematical Colloquium that um, a whole bunch of really important developments occurred both in um, in mathematics, but also in mathematical economics. So it was in the context of the mathematical colloquium that Menger was, was really encouraging people to pursue the application of mathematical me- methods to economics. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's that irony that his father was this devoutly opposed to mathematical economics, whereas his, the son was really um, a crucial, uh, you might say, for lack of a better word, influencer when it came to uh, promoting uh, mathematical economics. Um, now, I should say that, you know, Manger's role was really more of a facilitator, more of a promoter, right? He didn't, he didn't develop Goodell's incompleteness theorems, for example, but he was Goodell's teacher and and friend. He didn't develop mathematical economics on his own, but he encouraged and provided a form for the people that did develop mathematical economics. Um, And then finally, I should mention that he was active in the Viennese economics community at that time. So that meant that he he uh, knew people like Ludwig, Ludwig von Mises very well. Um, he engaged with uh, von Mises directly, um, both in writing and in person. He was um, a couple of years younger than F.A. Hayek, but they knew each other very well and maintained a lifelong friendship. Um, in fact, um, Manger, the elder, I'm sorry, the younger Manger, um, for years and years and years held on to his father's papers um, and kind of he wanted to do something with these papers. He planned to eventually write a biography of, of his father. And, and eventually he did write a partial biography that he was not able to complete, uh, complete before his own death in 1985. But it was Hayek and people like Gottfried Habeler, who was also a Viennese economist at the time, who were encouraging um, the younger Menger to develop this biography of his father, which um, most of those biographical details that I mentioned uh, earlier about the, the senior Menger were taken from the drafts of this biography that uh, we discovered in the Duke um, uh, library, basically. Um, And so um, we've done uh, probably more work on the biography of the Mangers than, uh, I don't want to say anyone, but more than as much, as much, if not more than anyone in the last few years. So, um, so, right. So Carl with a K Manger um, was important in his own right for um, his influence on Goodell, his influence on the Vienna Circle, his um, his role in the development of mathematical economics, his engagement with the Austrian economics community. Now, I should mention that much later in life, um, he came back to this question of the relationship between the sort of Austrian non or anti-mathematical method and mathematical economics. Economics. And perfectly in keeping with his logical tolerance or with his methodological tolerance, which I mentioned earlier, the position that he eventually arrived at was that, you know, um, basically mathematical economics and Austrian economics were just two logics, two different ways mm. of 
of investigating economic questions. And the anti-mathematical Austrian approach might be good for some purposes that the mathematical approach wasn't so good for, whereas the mathematical approach might be useful for certain purposes for which the Austrian approach is not terribly useful. So, so he applied this methodological tolerance not only to mathematics, not only to logic, but also to economic theories. And so to get to the final, to get to the answer to your question about why Menger is important for liberalism, I would argue that it is really this methodological tolerance that is important for liberalism. Because ultimately, what methodological tolerance is, the way that I interpret it is, is that it's something of a kind of John Stuart Mill type liberalism applied to methodological questions in economics and the other sciences, right? There is no single, just like Mill wrote and others have have written that there's no single best way to live your life. Um, liberalism is a program about kind of figuring out, testing out different ideas and trying to figure out what the best way is to, the best lifestyle is for you personally. Similarly in science and in mathematics and the humanities, there is no single best way to pursue some question. There are always multiple ways, are always plural methods by which we might pursue some scientific goal. And the question is really, what what method best works for achieving whatever goal we might be trying to achieve so so right so i see methodological tolerance as an application of um of liberalism to uh questions of scientific method and so that's why i would say that carl with a k-manger is important for liberalism i should just say just to wrap up the biographical stuff um manger carl with a k ended up in the united states he taught for a time at notre dame and then he eventually ended up at the Illinois Institute for Technology, where he taught for a long time. Uh, he eventually passed away in 1985. And uh, he uh, there are uh, Menger descendants um, still alive here in the United States. Um, and yeah, that's uh, those are the Mangers. Great. <laughs> that's about all I can say. In a, how much time did that take? That took about a half hour. Half hour. So, <laughs> you know, excellent. No, <laughs> thank, thank you, Scott, for that. That was excellent. I think. Um, and for those listening that don't know, or maybe, maybe they could tell, though, Scott also has his own podcast and such. So, I mean, that's why he perfectly was able to touch on everything I wanted anyway, with barely an interference at the exact right time where we need to take a break anyway. So that was excellent, Scott. I have some follow ups, but we will get to them as soon as we take our break and when we're back. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Scott Shield today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including... Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Scott Shield today. So, Scott, the first half was great. You established an excellent uh, biographical context for both Carl Menger with a C, the father of Carl Menger with a K. While you were doing that, and this segues nicely into a question I want to ask you, Obviously, again, like, you know, there's so much time one could cover with each of these questions I'm probably about to throw at you. But even at a high level, um, I was sort of interested in talking about drawing a few more lines between um, the interests and work of uh, Carl 
Menger the older and then Carl Menger the younger. But you touched on something I thought might be a good pathway into this. You talked about the sort of the irony of one being one of the founders of the Austrian school and then one being in mathematics, although we talked about tolerance theory and so on after that. I just wanted you to go a little bit more into that ultimate irony that you you had noted that we could come back to. Well, you know, I think that um, the the younger Menger was always sort of... Um, I, I want to say a bit defensive about his father's rejection of mathematics. Um, he went out of his way to uh, argue um, in some of the biographical things that he wrote about his father and also in this kind of retrospective essay I mentioned about methodology. Um, he went out of his way to emphasize, um, one, that his father didn't hate mathematics – Sometimes that's the that's sometimes that's the story that's given about Austrian economists. Right. They just they just hate mathematics. Right. <laughs> when they don't use arithmetic or something like that. Right. Um, he also emphasized that um, his father was fairly knowledgeable about mathematics, at least as far as anyone in Austria of his generation was knowledgeable about mathematics. So, so the Austrian educational system, especially in the 19th century, was uh, it started off extremely backwards. I mean, it was essentially, you know, Catholic dogma, if you like. Um, there was a there was a, a reform of the education system that that occurred around mid century that changed some of that. But the Austrian educational system remained extremely backwards into the late 18 into the late 19th century. So the mathematics that uh Menger senior was taught was basically mathematics as it, as it existed in like the 16th or 17th century. Like like he didn't he didn't know any of the excuse me more advanced mathematical ideas that had been developed over the course of the of the especially the 19th century. Um he was just not exposed to those ideas. So so the younger Menger kind of made the case, you know, he didn't hate mathematics. He was pretty good at mathematics. He just wasn't exposed to much of the mathematics that he might have needed to be able to kind of develop a math mathematized version of Austrian economics. But at the same time, he also emphasized that ultimately, and this gets into the point about tolerance, um, ultimately, the reason that his father rejected um, the mathematical method was – um, was for a reason that he himself, as a math mathematician, could accept, which was basically that to to try to treat economic phenomena as to try to mathematize economic phenomena, or to try to quantify um, different fact, different causal factors mm -hmm. of economic phenomena, is to treat them as more um, specific. Than they in fact are. So I'll just give you the, this is the, the the example that that the senior Menger himself used. So um, he thought he could explain prices. He thought he could explain you know why the price of coffee in a Viennese coffee house was such and such. Um, but he noticed that you know prices as an empirical matter always lie in some range, right? I mean, it's the the price that I pay for a, a cup of coffee here in Phoenix uh, may or may not uh, will be 
more or less close with the price of coffee that they're paying in Vienna today, right? But it's not going to be exact. I mean, if you like, think about think about the sort of slight price differences that you observe in um, when you pay for a, a gallon of gas, or I don't know right. what, what what you don't you don't buy gallons in Canada. No, what is it that you liters? <laughs> liters. Okay, for a liter of gas in Canada, it's always going to be you know you might you might notice that even uh, even right across the street from each other, right? You'll see one one uh, gas station selling a liter of gas for a certain price mm-hmm. and right across the street they're selling the same basically the same basic gallon of gas for a slightly different price off by a cent or right. two or you go across so, town it might be a few cents off but it's a range of course, yeah of course so economic phenomena in other words they always lie within a range mm-hmm. right they don't they, they don't there is no single price for any particular good and we can explain why that's the case we can explain why there are these slight price differences but mayor ultimately just thought that economic phenomena were not precise we're not specified well enough to have mathematics sort of fruitfully applied to them and that was a criticism that even the younger manger um could accept now he also thought that like i said that there were purposes for which you might want to use mathematics right mm-hmm. you might want to kind of neglect all of these discrepancies and you know uh, hypothesize prices as being sort of specific or precise or not falling within a range and then you might for various scientific be- reasons be interested in what um you know what follows from that kind of a mathematized analysis but again that's a different sort of purpose than the sort of purpose for which you might use um the uh, the austrian kind of anti-mathematical approach um so 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 right so it is ironic that the younger manger became a mathematician It is ironic that he um promoted mathematical methods um as far as he did and really kind of has this um this privileged place in the history of economics as a as a as a defender a promoter of the mathematical method um but it also makes some sense once you understand the kind of tolerant attitude that mm-hmm. he had about about um, how we do science. You no, know, and getting to the core of this, then with Carl uh, Menger, the younger Carl Menger with a K, um, do do you feel that this is either one of the overlooked or frankly just missed potential almost contributions to the history and thought around economics that you had Carl Menger with a K who would not be like rejecting mathematical methods, obviously as a mathematician, but sees this again, dual use and tolerance for like, you know, both the non-mathematical approach and the mathematical approach. Whereas it sounds like he might've been, obviously he's not here. We can't ask him, but definitely game for the fact that math can measure model and have some uses to understand how the world's working in economics, but shouldn't be used thought of in the sense of like physics for example like in terms of that hard and steadfast like is this sort of like a overlooked or even like not even overlooked missed contribution potentially people think about the history of econ because he simply wasn't an economist like you wouldn't count him part of the austrian school he's just a mathematician that you know not dabbled but basically was in these circles i suppose right that's a great question. I think you're exactly right. Yes. So, I mean, there, but he, he's missed in different ways um, by different audiences, right? So, the the literature on mathematical economics looks at him as this promoter of the mathematical method, and there's all there's sometimes this kind of um, undertone of, oh, you see, the son of Karl Menger eventually rejected Austrian economics. Right? Well, no, that he didn't reject Austrian economics. He thought it was important, very. important important for certain purposes. Um, on the other hand, you have these the, the Austrian economists who also miss 
um, what I think is sort of the liberal um, implication of methodological tolerance, right? They also look at the younger manger, Carl with a K, as being a mathematician to kind of discard him as, oh, we don't want to have anything to do with that guy because he's, uh, you know, he's a mathematician and we hate mathematics. Um, but really, they miss the fact that he was making this extremely liberal point about how we are to pursue um, our scientific goals, that we are to test out different approaches, different lifestyles, if you like, different worldviews, and try to find the, the scientific style, the scientific method that best fits with what we're trying to accomplish scientifically. So yeah, I think he's missed both by the people that defend um, the mathematical method, right? They see him as, they they misinterpret him as rejecting Austrian economics. Um, similarly, the Austrian economists, they also interpret him as kind of rejecting Austrian econo- economics, but they miss that he had this other side to him, which was this, this tolerance, this emphasis on, we need both. We need Austrian economics right. and we need mathematical economics. They serve different purposes and they're good for different different objectives mm-hmm. yeah and, and like a second layer down in that conversation once we get over the whether they're someone is you know rejecting or accepting mathematics as from an austrian economics perspective a second layer into that it seems to be a, a missed interesting opportunity and longer form of discussion about how mathematics could specifically even be used perhaps even in conjunction with austrian economics like i mean obviously i'm free associating here because the practice hasn't been developed but no um, that's you know. a, that's a great point because i mean there are still people today and 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 math Austrian economics is becoming, has become somewhat more, I don't want to say mathematized. I mean, they still resist that, but, you know, well, well, they they claim their own schism too, right? A lot of these folks too, as well. So there's that whole, you know, we can talk about, I mean, this is, this is relevant to the schism, right? (laughs) Right. Because I mean, I, I, I think that there is a, a schism as well. Um, but in modern Austrian economics, you see um, the importation of methods that look more technical, more mathematical than certainly anything that, you know, uh, Bombaver, Wieser, or Mises would ever have done. Um, I think in particular, some of the kind of agent-based modeling techniques that have been brought into uh, been brought into Austrian economics. I mean, you have to remember, right? I mean, we have this tendency of thinking about mathematics as like, as a discipline that doesn't progress. Right. But that's completely false, right? right? Mathematics is a is a progressive discipline. It's constantly advancing. New methods are being developed. And it may ultimately be that um, there are uh, some of the newer mathematics that certainly the elder Manger and probably even the younger Manger was not familiar with um, that may be applicable to Austrian ideas. I mean, complexity theory, right? Complexity theory is probably the, the most obvious example. Hayek does nothing in his latter years but talk about the complexity of economic phenomena. Complexity theory as it is developed, as far as I understand it, I'm no expert by any means, but it's a mathematical discipline. They use mathematical techniques. So um, it's quite possible that, uh, like the importation of the agent-based modeling method, that bringing in more complexity theory will ultimately lead to an Austrian economics that looks more technical, um, if not mathematized. Right. On that note, then, and at a high level, because I know this would probably take its own study essay and uh you know episode unto itself um so i think it'd be helpful for the listeners as well to hear about just at a high level what the austrian schism especially the austrian school itself might might view it so there's there, there seems to be along the way a split into two different camps of methodology and approach 
um, between different camps that we could fairly call Austrian economists, but there's there's two different things going there. Could you explain that at a high level? Sure. Um, and and I'll I'll say um, I, I apologize. My dogs are having a fight in the background, so the growling you hear is my dogs like, going at <laughs> each other's throat. Um, anyways, um, I've written on this topic probably more than any other, um, and I have my own um, opinion um, that I've defended in in numerous places. Um, there is a schism. Um, some people will, will deny that. Um, but there, there is a schism. There's at least one schism. In fact, I think that we could, I think we could, um, name multiple Austrian schools, um, that are distinguished in terms of, um, method, um, more formally in terms of the kinds of things that they study. But at a high level, there are at least these two, um, branches of the Austrian school. There is the Manger, well, I should say Manger Manger, because I count both Mangers. There is the Manger Manger Hayek branch, okay? And that is this this methodological tolerance branch. And then there is the, I would also include um, Bombavirk on that branch. Hmm. And then there is the um, Wieser, Mises, Rothbard, you might also include Murray Rothbard, um, that there is that branch of the Austrian school. And what distinguishes that latter branch is that they are not tolerant when it comes to economic method. They are convinced that there is basically one way of doing economics, um, Misesian a priorism, um, Mises's methodology. Now, now, I should say this is where I think another uh, schism occurs. There are different versions of Misesian a priorism. I think um, a priorism in Mises's mouth looks somewhat different than a priorism in Rothbard's mouth, but we can ignore that for the time being. Right. But the idea behind a priorism is just basically that, um, or at least as Mises um, enunciated his a, a prioristic view, um, there are certain facts about economic phenomena, in particular the fact that humans are acting beings, that Mises thought, uh, one, we could know that without having to have any kind of experience of the world. We could just know it by sort of reflecting on ourselves as human beings. And moreover, he thought that there was no way that we could be wrong about that. There's no way we could be wrong about that. So the the fact of human action, Mises thought, was something we knew by introspection or by pure reason or by intuition. And moreover, it was something we were apodictically certain about. We could, there's no possible way we could be wrong about that. Well, if that's how you start off economic methodology, then there's no real room for tolerance. There's no real room for pluralism. There's no real room for competing methods. There's no room for the uh, K-Manger insight that different methods might be useful for different scientific purposes. So that is the the main schism that I see in the Austrian school, the manger Bombavirk, manger hayek schism or branch, and then the uh, Wieser-Mises-Rothbard. Uh, branch right and to, to dig into that a little further and at the same time sort of ask this pillar question for the last swing of our convo here for maybe the next about 10 minutes or so and i think you'll see what i'm trying to do with this question because in one in one of your papers i reviewed um you i guess i should take a step back and say often when people talk about the austrian school and some of the key founders 
and let's say certain people in certain camps will often cite i like the the ogs the original the first albums if you will of the austrian school and uh, menger's often thrown in there up to about mises and some people that don't like hayek uh, will basically say and, and, and screw that basically but often mises and menger are the names thrown in together not by all people but by a lot of people you do have a paper and i think it ties very nicely into the kind of thing you're just saying there that talks about how when you get into this a little more further Carl Menger and here Carl with a C would have probably rejected von Mises's uh like methodological approaches in some ways um but let's end with that let's get into that here because I think that's really will wrap up not only this part of the conversation but also a little bit more about how people that are seriously interested in classical liberalism in this area might think of Carl Menger's contributions and his thought yeah so um I think that one way that you, another way to describe that schism that I just described um, is in terms of the dogmatism of the two different branches, right? So the the Manger Hayek branch is less dogmatic about how we're supposed to do uh, economic science than the than the Wieser Mises Rothbard branch, who insist that there's just one way, their way of doing economics. Um, And so that paper that you mentioned sort of ends with noting that there's a dilemma for those people. I should back up and say real quick, this thing about dogmatism, I mentioned that because the reason that so many people in the Misesian branch, the Rothbardian branch, don't like Hayek is basically because he was not dogmatic enough for their tastes. Like, I mean, Hayek, you know, if you read The Road to Serfdom, he leaves space for a welfare state. He leaves space for some of these government programs. The guys on that side are just like, absolutely not, no way. There's no justification for these things ever. So, um, you know, one of the most ironic or weird experiences of my life was about 10 years ago when I went to spend a week at the Ludwig von Mises Institute and I started telling people that I was studying Hayek and the response I got was, why are you studying that socialist? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean, so the the reason why so many people in that Mises Rothbard branch don't like Hayek is that he was insufficiently dogmatic for them, right? So, and that's um, why Milton Friedman stands absolutely no chance. If Hayek has a small one, then Milton Friedman has no right, chance. Right. <laughs> Friedman was a downright communist <laughs> right, compared exactly. to, uh, compared to uh, you know, Rothbard and Mises. Anyways, um, so I think that that paper that you mentioned it ends with uh with a discussion that you know the um i mean what another kind of irony here is that the the manger hayek branch tends to be less uh like i said less dogmatic but less dogmatic about liberalism itself right they're just kind of more open minded about the political possibilities um and the irony is that the the people on the more dogmatic branch, the Wieser Mises side, Rothbard side, they're the ones that are really like really insistent and dogmatic about liberalism, right? That's where you get that's where the libertarian branch and the kind of anarcho-capitalist branch of Austrianism kind of falls out of that, out of that um line of thought. Um and so on one hand, you have these very dogmatic liberals who seem to be dogmatic about their liberalism in every regard except for economic methodology. In other words, we can we can choose how we want to live our lives however we want, except when we're doing economics. 
when we're doing economics, there's only Misesian a priorism. And if you're not doing Misesian a priorism, you're not doing economics right. Right. On the other hand, we've got this uh, kind of less dogmatic school who's more, more open-minded about liberalism and about the alternatives who are ultimately more open-minded also about how we do economics. So they're less, they're less dogmatic in how they apply this liberalism, but they're more consistent about their liberalism in the methodological kind of world. That's right. how, that's how I see it. So the people in the, in the Mises Rothbard branch are, I write in that paper kind of stuck on the horns of a dilemma. They need to either be, you know, um, pluralists, undogmatic about everything including economic methodology, or they need to be, I mean, I've compared in places, I've compared the Misesian approach to a sort of methodological totalitarianism. And that's what it seems to me, right? There's only one way to do things and you better do it. And if you don't, you're not doing it the right way. You better do it our way. What is that if not totalitarianism? So, you know, there's this irony that these sort of deeply committed liberals are sort of totalitarians when it comes to economic methodology. So right. I think they're they're stuck on this horn, the horns of this dilemma and they need to they need to uh find um a good way out and of course I would suggest that the best way out is just to reject Misesian a priorism and adopt a more tolerant uh, to adopt the the Mengarian line, basically mm -hmm. the 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 more liberal methodology. Yeah, no, that that heavy correlation or connection between just the uh, methodological approach and just the way people approach economics in general, and how that seems to tie in with in what is ostensibly supposed to be a separate sort of set of political conclusions. It's a very strong connection between that level of dogmatism. That's a very interesting observation. Um, and, and and that actually pretty much does take us to a point where our time is pretty much wound down. As as usual, Scott, it's great speaking with you today. Lots packed in there. I'm gonna, you know, uh, ultimately let you have the last word here, as I do with all the guests, just to bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point of our exploration of the question. So I'm gonna ask you the official last question here to tie everything up. Is in everything we've discussed, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here? Why both Carls, Carl with a K, Carl with a C. Carl Menger is important for liberalism. In other words, if you wanted someone to leave listening to us today with one, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything, what would you want them to take away? Well, I would say simply that the the Mangers, um, whether they sort of meant to or intended it or not, or whether they sort of uh, recognized the relationship between their respective ideas, they they ultimately um, developed a, a, a methodology that is basically uh, liberalism applied to science. And so um, I think that that is, um, I mean, of course, they were both politically, they were also uh classical liberals themselves, um, although that that meant different things in 1870 for C. Manger than it may have meant in 1940, say, for K. Manger, but they were both committed to, uh, to classical liberalism. But I think really in terms of their um, importance for liberalism, it is this um, recognition of um, or, or this application of liberal ideas to uh, scientific methodology. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, I mean, you could also say about um, C. Manger, of course, his uh, his writings on spontaneous order, which ultimately lead to Hayek, um, which, as, as we talked the last time I was on the show, are incredibly important for liberalism. Um, but I think those things are connected, actually. I mean, I think part of what um, part of one way to understand methodological tolerance is that, um, you know, the best 
uh, solution to a scientific problem will emerge spontaneously if um, individual scientists are permitted to pursue their own methods and approaches. Um, so, yeah, so I really think that you get in the Mengarian approach um, something that is really internally consistent with the rest of Austrian economics, um, the spontaneous order approach, the commitment to classical liberalism. I think it's far more consistent than um, than the alternative um, Mises Rothbard approach. So that's what I would say. Great. No, that was very interesting. Scott Scheel, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again. Thanks again, Alex. And I, ap- I apologize to the, uh, the audience for the sound of my dogs fighting in the background. <laughs> The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Bye-bye.